afterwards we've uh, got copper out the back there with some bookies and so on. So today's New Testament reading is from John 20, 19 through to 23, if you want to get that in your Bible. Or on your mobile. I can change the font on my mobile and read it. All right. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. But Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then he, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Well, uh, if we haven't met, my name's Sam. Uh, it's a privilege to get to uh, preach this passage this morning. I'm just, I'm one of the pastors, if you hadn't, hadn't been here before. All right, let me pray, and then we'll get into that passage. Our great Heavenly Father, when we come before your word, um, it's like nothing else. So we come expectant, um, with reverence, interested, curious, longing, hungry, thirsty, needy. And so we pray that you would feed us on your word this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, our passage begins with these words. On the evening of that day. And so immediately we're located on a particular day, and really, I mean, what a day. It brings to mind, doesn't it, suddenly all the precious things that have happened on that day. There has never in the history of the world been a day like that day. There's not been in the history of the world a day that has so shaped our world such that that day did. That very first resurrection Day. We meet today and each Sunday because of that day. We meet on this day along with billions of others around the world and throughout history on this day because of this singular, most important day. That's true. It is a day beyond all other days. Although it, when you first read it, or you, if you were there at the time, you just probably had no idea it was that significant, probably, Right? Particularly, I mean, think about that weekend, because we're right now at the very end of the weekend. We are on the evening of that day, that very first Lord's Day. What's happened that weekend? Well, a man died on a cross. How, how many other men died on crosses that day, on that Friday, or that weekend, or that week, month, year? How many? I, I, I don't know. A lot. And then, the man that died, he was no emperor. He was no politician. He was not famous by world's standards. He had no political office, but he was the one that died, but relatively, relatively obscure. His friends, 
who were to continue on his mission are equally obscure. In fact, they run and they flee and they kind of abandon their master in his moment of need. His resurrection, permitting that that actually happened, right? I mean, who's he appeared to? It has, he hasn't not appeared in kind of like bright lights and fireworks and, and you know, all this kind of, you know, big event. It's, um, it's Mary. It's, it's not to the elites of the day. It's, it's Mary. Mary, you know, Mary from Magdalene um, in a garden. You know, Mary, she's the one that, well, it's a, it's for, for, for beginners, it's for beginning, it's a woman. She's an emotional at the time and... She's one with a sinful past, and she has been demon-possessed. This is not in the how-to manual to start a movement, is it? I don't know if you've ever read entrepreneurial books, but Steve Jobs, we probably do it. He never put, put this kind of thing together. If you really want to start something, it's going to take off. No, you would want to redo this whole thing, wouldn't you? All right, let's replace Mary with Instagram influencers. Let's replace the garden kind of tomb, kind of nowhere with some kind of online streaming, you know, on YouTube or something. We need celebrity endorsements. We need a successful launch for this big movement that's going to literally shape the known world. But it's actually kind of part of the evidence that it's true, isn't it? Um, and, and historians will say this, apologists will say this, they'll point out that if you were going to make it up, because that's the, that's the theory at, at times, isn't it? Like the disciples kind of made this up, they made up the resurrection. Well, if you were going to make up the story, would you make it up like this? Really? Well, your first key witness is Mary from Magdalene? It's amazing. Yet this is it, right? They could not have imagined, hey, They could not have imagined that day the impact and what was about to come. Tom Holland, a famous historian, he's not a Christian, but he wrote his book called On the the Rise of Christianity, and he called it this, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. It really did. And it was this weekend. We're at the end of the weekend, the evening of that day. So again, a passage begins on the evening of that day. So for us, it's been a week since we were with Mary in the garden in that morning and Jesus appeared to her. For us, it's been a week. For them, it's just that was earlier today, okay? And the last thing we know that happened earlier that day was, it says this in, our, in the previous passage at the end of it, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So our passage flips from kind of there, Mary, we know that she's gone to the disciples, and now we get a kind of sneak peek, a picture of what was going on in the, in the disciples as they were hanging out together. And, and if you've just followed the story, I, you know, what would you picture would be going on in the disciples in that room? I, I, I don't know. What, what would you think? I would think, oh man, they must be like so excited right? I mean, Jesus is born. Like, I mean, Jesus is alive. He's, he's resurrected from the dead. You can't believe it. There'd be high fives. Music would be playing. Peter would be dancing, probably. They'd be singing songs, right? Let's go sing, sing another, one, another round of Because He Lives, you know? I can face tomorrow because He lives. All fear is gone because I know He holds the future. My life is worth the living because He lives. Let's sing it again the 27th time. How good is this? Up from the grave he arose, you know. What do we find? Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked 
where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. What? Huh? So the disciples are... They're in a room together, right? They want to be together, but the reason they want to be together is, I guess, fear they don't want to be alone right now. And the doors are shut, and they're locked, and they're racked with fear. What? Mary just came. Fear of who? What do you have fear of? The Jews, or the Jewish leaders, as in the ones who they'd actually fled from earlier on Friday when Jesus was arrested. The ones they've been fearful of for a few days. The ones who cried out, crucify him, crucify him, and would not relent until Jesus was hanging on a cross. Now, on one level, you can understand this. Well, they've got probably a few reasons to be fearful of them. If you want to end the movement, which they did want to do, they wanted to end the Jesus movement. Well, they've taken out the leader of the movement. Now, what do you do? We'll probably go after the followers of that movement. The disciples know that Jesus' tomb now is empty, but they're probably not that convinced that if they ended up in a tomb, that their tomb would also end up empty. Right? So the threat is real. And Jesus told them that persecution, just a few days earlier, that persecution and hatred was actually going to come for them. They've got reasons to be fearful. John 15, verse 18, Jesus said to them, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Or in 16, verse 2, Jesus said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Do you see? So there they are. They've heard the news. Jesus is risen. And they are scared of the Jews. Both are true at the same time. Is this a picture of the modern church today sometimes? It's a good exercise, actually. I hope it's a good exercise. I found it helpful. If you could just clear your mind for a moment, and you were coming at the whole Christian story ignorantly, but you just kind of, you kind of heard that there are a group of people who believe things like this. There are a group of people out there, and they believe that the God who made the universe, all the galaxies, He knows all the stars, He numbers them, right? That God loves them. They believe that. And, and He showed love for them by coming into the world and His Son dying on a cross to save them. He wanted them to be forgiven of everything that they'd done wrong. There was a group of people who believed that. And there were a group of people that believed that though He went into the grave, He rose again and that these people really believe that that's kind of the first fruits of their own resurrection. They will too, even though they die, they will rise again and they will live forever. They will inherit a kingdom forever. There's people who believe that, right? And they believe, they believe that this God is sovereign over the world and He is working everything together for their good, right? That's what they believe. They believe that everything that comes into their lives is by the, the gracious, loving, providential hand of God. They believe that. They believe that this God loves them in such a way that He keeps them. He will never cast them out. There's a group of people that actually believe that. Now, if you, 
you heard that, you go, what would you think if I encountered that group? What would it be like? What would they, what would the vibe be? Probably thinking, my goodness, they must be like rejoicing no matter what happens in their lives. They just must feel like bulletproof in the world. You know, maybe like people like hate them, they'd probably just love people back. But they'd be so kind. They'd probably be very humble. Like they wouldn't take themselves very seriously, but they would, man, they would take God seriously. They would be, I mean, that would be a group of people to come across. They would have a lot of courage, I reckon. Knowing that God watches over them and cares. Like they, they really believe that. They, they would be full of courage. But what is found today? Hopefully some of that. But it depends, it depends where you are, obviously. I think we do see a lot of fear. And it plays out different. So in some churches, out of fear of the world, they will compromise and compromise and compromise just to be liked and just to be accepted. Others, out of fear of the world, they will fight the world back. Oh, you come at me, I will come at you. You mock me, I will mock you. You come at me online, I will come at you online. Others, out of fear, they just lock the doors and hang out together and don't want to step outside. But you look at these disciples and because we come from a kind of different vantage point, we can look at it and you kind of pity them, don't you? You go, oh guys, you don't have to be like this. John 16, again, in the upper room, before all this happened this weekend, Jesus said to them, in this world you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. If you could speak to them, you'd say, guys, take courage. One commentator put it like this. He said, they are living on the wrong side of the resurrection. I like that. I wonder if you are. When you look at the world and your disposition towards the world, are you, in a sense, living on the wrong side of the resurrection, because every fear you could go, yeah, but, you know, those people are like, yeah, but, yeah, but Jesus rose from the dead, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, but, but our enemy is, is large, they are powerful, yeah, but like, Jesus rose from the dead, you know, yeah, but our, our enemies, like, like, they're the one, they could really harm us, yeah, but like, Jesus did rise from the dead, no, but you don't understand, like, my, my kids are growing up in this world, like, like, yeah, but remember, Jesus rose from the dead, like, he's the king. Yeah, but I'm, 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 I'm getting sick, right, I'm, I'm getting older, I'm, I'm, I've got all kinds of pain, like, I, yeah, but just remember, he, Jesus did rise from the dead. We live in a world that is racked with fear, don't we? You don't have to look hard. News media, social media, I mean, it's it, like, it's a money spinner, right? To sow fear is to make profits. It's profitable. But we believe in the resurrection. We are not like anyone else in the world. So I'm a parent, I have children. And I love, I love this, this verse from, from the song I mentioned earlier, Because He Lives. Remember that verse? How sweet to hold a newborn baby, to feel the pride and joy He gives. 
but greater still, the calm assurance this child can face uncertain days. Why? Because he lives. So into that room, full of fear, it says this, Jesus came and stood among them. That's awesome, isn't it? Um, locked doors were not an issue, obviously. Notice where he stands. He doesn't just kind of stand by the door, just like this, or he doesn't stand on the periphery. He's not hidden in a corner. It says he stands among them. The word is, in Greek word is meson, means middle, means in the midst. He stood, as it were, with them, at the very center of them. One commentator said, at the center of their existence. This is a common trope, I think, in, in movies and stories like this, where, where um, and, and you could, I think probably lots of stories will come into your mind, where, like, all hope seems lost, this person's battling, the, the, you know, the other people, and, and the odds are not in their favor, and they're full of fear, because it just doesn't seem like there's any way out of this, but what happens? Someone else comes and stands beside them, or others come, and suddenly, hope, you know, I think it'll like Lord of the Rings, you know, like we're all losing and we need more, more you know, and along comes the elves or something, you know, like, or if, if I've lost you on that one, I'll try Avengers, you know. <laughs> so um, you got, you know, Captain America getting up off the ground, his shield's half broken off and he looks out and there's Thanos and all the thousands and he's just like, and he just tightens it up, you know, <laughs> like he's going to take him. But then along comes like every superhero that ever lived, you know, <laughs> and you go, oh, okay, I'll be okay. And it's kind of like that, like this, this is just fear in this room. But Jesus stands among them and that changes everything. A lot of our fears, think about this, I think a lot of our fears come from or spring from, overflow from, what do we have in the center of our lives? What do we have at the center of our existence? Um, David Foster Wallace is an American novelist. He died in 2008. He was not a Christian, but he said this at a, at a college commencement speech, and he said these words. He said, there is no such thing as not worshipping, as in, like, in the words of this, this text, there's no such thing as not having something at the center of the room in your life, at the center of, of, the, of your existence, at the center of a community. There's no such thing as that. So there's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Isn't that true? You put money at the center, you will fear losing it. You put looks at the center, you will fear aging. You put your reputation at the center, you will fear being real and vulnerable. You put fame at the center, you will fear obscurity. You put safety at the center, you will fear pretty much everything. And what we need is something in the midst, in our midst, in this, the midst of our community that will not change, that is there and is sure, an anchor for the soul. For the Christian, that is the person and the presence of God. There is nothing else. It is the person and the presence 
of God. There's a great illustration of this in Exodus chapter 33. Do you know the story where just, it's just coming off the, the golden calf incident and God has seen it and God is angry with his people, rightly, and he gives them an offer. He says, okay, that's how you're a stiff-necked people. Okay, here's, here's, here's the offer. I'll give you the promised land. I will send an angel and the angel will go before you into the promised land, wipe out all of your enemies and you will get to live in the land of milk and honey. Like that's, that's my offer to you. But here's the thing. He says this, I will not go up among you. I will not be with you. So you see the offer? You can have it all. Martin Lloyd-Jones has an amazing sermon on this. It's at, so look it up on, online. You can have it all. You can have the land. Go on in. I will take out all your enemies for you. You don't even need to worry about that. I'll send an angel. You will have it all. One thing you won't have, my presence. I will not go up among you. And the people of Israel are are wise enough to go, then we do not want to go. We do not want to go. That would not be worth it. We want you. Lloyd-Jones makes the application to the church. Hey, we could have all kinds of successes. We could have all kinds of things. The newspapers could write about us and we could become this flourishing thing. Ah, but always the question is, is the presence of God among us? We could lead any kind of thing full of fear, but is the presence of God among us? Lloyd-Jones says this, men and women, when they are truly awake and begin to realize that there is nothing that is so serious as to be without the presence of of God. With Jesus, oh, sorry, without Jesus, say. And you can have literally everything in the world, and at the same time, you'll have everything to fear, because you could lose it all. With the presence of Jesus, you can have nothing in the world, and you can have nothing to fear, because you have Him. So Jesus comes and stands in the middle of these fearful disciples. And then it says this, and he said to them, peace be with you. It says it again in verse 21, look at that, peace be with you. A few verses later, look down, different occasion, but verse 26, although the doors were locked, so the doors were locked again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. All right, so the first words of the resurrected Lord Jesus to his disciples is peace be with you. He repeats it three times, so I'm pretty slow, but I pick up on this seems important. John loves to include layers of meaning in the things that are said throughout his gospel. We've noticed this so many times, and I think this is no different. I'm going to look at three different levels to this word, this, this, this saying to them, peace be with you. On the first, most basic level, there's the obvious comfort to their fear of the Jews, right? But notice that Jesus doesn't say, hey, peace be with you. Why? Because you've got nothing to worry about. They're not going to hurt you, right? You don't need to worry. They're not coming after you. You're safe. That's not what he says. We've already seen that Jesus told them they actually would be persecuted. And we know, historically, they certainly are persecuted. So what is this peace that he says you can have whilst at the same time you are not safe? It is not dependent on circumstances. Well, that peace is the presence of God with them, isn't it? In the upper room, Jesus promised them trouble, but he also promised them peace. Precious words. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. 
Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid, Jesus said. Or John 16, 32. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. You see, this, like side by side. I'm saying these things to you so that in me you will have peace. In the world, tribulation. Same time. Amazing. Unbelievable. We live in a world, as we said, of fear, which means we also live in a world that is desperate to know peace. Right? Like, that I would know peace. Um, So, to find out more about what the world thinks about this, I went to the obvious place, opradaily.com, and I read an article. There you go. And the article was called, How to Find Inner Peace and happiness in the chaos. That's what you want, isn't it? Peace in the chaos. So I read it so you don't have to, okay? So here it is. The f- I'm not actually going to tell you all of it, but these are the first three steps just so you get the gist of it. First, breathing exercises. The trick is to go in through the nose and out through the mouth, okay? There you go. Second, <laughs> the thing is to remember, second point is to remember that you are breathing, Okay? That was helpful. Remember that you are breathing and um, that you are, and literally it says, hopefully safe and loved. Hopeful didn't really make me feel very peaceful at all, actually. (laughs) This feels like to undo all the peaceful that I was feeling. Okay, step number three, if this wasn't working for you, visualize your happy place. Suggestions such as being under your covers or playing with a pet or playing with a pet under your covers. No, no, that wasn't one of it. But (laughs) actually wouldn't be good at all, would it? Um, No, but things like that, right? You just kind of visualize that and you'll be be on your way. Well, on and on it went from there. And I can't say it got better, but I think I do have a better option. The presence of God. The person and the presence of God with you. I was speaking with a good friend of mine this week and he said um, that his dad had gone into palliative care um, just the day before. And he said to me that today will be the last day that I get with my dad. I'm I'm pretty sure of that. He was talking to me that morning. He was on his way to his dad. This will be the last day I get with my dad. And he talked about it and we were talking for a little while and I eventually said, brother, it's so encouraging the way you're dealing with this, deep grief, but deep peace. And, and you're, just, you're just such an example of trusting the Lord in the middle of all of this. And, he's, and he's, this was his words that he said straight, straight after that. He said, Sam, it's the difference between head and heart knowledge. I love Jesus with all my heart. I love him with my whole heart, he said. In this passage, I think it's like he's saying, Jesus is at the center of my room and he's telling me, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And he called the next morning to say his dad had died, except he didn't say that, actually. He said, hey, Sam, my dad is the happiest he's ever been. Amazing. Peace. Where did he turn? Not inward grounded in himself. How shallow. For deep grief, how are you going to turn inward? That's too shallow. No, he turned to the person and the presence of God. And when Jesus says, peace be with you, he's saying, I think peace is with them because he's with them. 
what peace is? Peace is not like a substance, you know, like a thing that he gets transferred into our life and we have that thing called peace. No, when Jesus, peace be with you, say, I'm with you. That's our peace. Spurgeon writes, Jesus did not come into their midst to show them a new thought, a philosophic discovery, or even a deep doctrine, or a profound mystery, or indeed anything but himself. I love that. Peace be with you, he says. They might have wished, he said, safety be with you. Wealth be with you. Prosperity be with you. I hope they didn't wish that. Actually, I'm sure they didn't. I'm sure this, was, this is better than any of that. Peace himself is with them, whatever comes. Now, that's on one level. On another level, I think when Jesus says, peace be with you, he's offering them incredible grace. In what sense? Because notice when he's saying this, he's saying this not after a weekend where they've really nailed it, you know, and they were very holy and diligent and they were servant-hearted, you know, all these things, just so loyal. It came after a weekend of total failure. Abandoned him in his time of need. Peter, the outspoken one, well, at least he followed along, but he, he just denied that he even knew him three times. And what will Jesus' first words be to them? See, when they, when they hear Jesus is alive, that may not be actually like apparent to them straight away, obvious to them, oh, that's going to be good for us, right? Because, I mean, wonder what he thinks of us now, right? We were, we were not our best. What will he say to us when we see him? What will he say? What will the disappointment on his face, like, what will it be like? And Jesus turns up and he says to them, to these faithless, slow-to-learn, cowardly disciples, peace be with you. J.C. Ryle writes, peace and not blame. Peace and not fault-finding. Peace and not rebuke was the first word which this little company heard from their master's lips after he left the tomb. And this is just fresh off failure. Isn't that amazing? Like, this is, the, this is just a picture of the gospel, isn't it? That God comes and he says to us, peace, and it's not after you fix things up, right? And I don't know what kind of week you've had, and I don't know what kind of weekend you've had. And maybe you came here, and maybe that might have been, like, I want peace with God, I want, I want to know that, but I'm going to have to, like, get some runs on the board first. Like, I'm going to have to get a few days of faithfulness, at least, before I can re-approach. And the first word that God has to those who are His after failure is peace with you. It actually didn't end. This is the good news for sinners. Dane Ortland writes in his book, um, Gentle and Lowly, says... Jesus does not love like us. We love until we are betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. And in his book, he quotes, I've read this out before, but it was a couple of years ago, so you won't remember it. Um, he, um, he quotes the pastor named Benjamin Grosenvor. Um, he was speaking as if you could picture Jesus saying to someone or saying to one of the disciples, hey, if you run into that soldier that put the spear into my side, do you remember we, we looked at that passage? If you, if you see that soldier, just here's what I'd like you to say to him. Say these words. He says this, if you meet that poor wretch that thrust the spear into my side, 
tell him there is another way, a better way of coming at my heart. If he will repent and look upon whom he has pierced and will mourn, I will cherish him in that very bosom he has wounded. He shall find the blood he shed an ample atonement for the sin of shedding it. And tell him from me, he will put me to more pain and displeasure by refusing this offer of my blood than when he drew it forth. I think that brings us to the third level of peace be with you, which is it's just the gospel that we get peace with God. Peace with God. That's what, why Jesus fundamentally did die on the cross, isn't it? He died on the cross to reconcile us to God. How? By taking on the punishment we deserved. By taking on our sin. By the wages of sin is death and he died. And he rose again so that we could be reconciled to God. It ties in exactly with what Jesus does next. Verse 20, When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, what's he doing there? Yes, of course he's showing them I'm truly alive. Like, I'm physically, I'm here, it's real, right? You can see that it's me. It's not just my hands, right? A lot of people had scars in their hands if they were crucified. My side as well. It's like, it's definitely me. I'm definitely alive. But even more, I think he's showing them the means by which he has purchased what he just said, peace with you. Peace came to you through violence to me. The scars are the evidence, not just of his substitutionary death that he died in their place, but also because they are scars now of his victory over death, his death and resurrection, which become the grounds by which he can say, peace be with you. Peace with God, peace with God. It's the, I honestly, it's the heart, at the very heart of the gospel. It's the very heart of the, the purpose of the death of Christ. Is why Paul begins all these letters saying, grace and peace be with you. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.20, to reconcile to himself, reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. <coughs> Romans 5.10, for it was while we were sinners, sorry, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So I just wonder how that lands on you. You have peace with God. Emotionally, like what that feels like. Whew. What is it like? I'm sure for some people, it's like, I didn't even know we were enemies. You know, like if I walked up to you, and I, I think I'm getting along with everyone, you know, I said, look, it's all good now. You'd be like, huh? Was there, was there an issue? I think that some people might find that. You go, you can, you can have peace with God. Peace with God? Were we enemies? Yes. Does it land on you like that? Or does it land on you... That you can have peace with God. You can be reconciled to God kind of on the level of, yeah, I've, I had an argument with my husband or I had an argument with my wife or, or, or a best friend and things were tense for a while, but we're kind of like, we're back together again now and, and, and it's just nice to have peace between us again. Does it land emotionally with that kind of force? Or is it maybe more like how the world felt on the 8th of May, 1945, VE Day, you know, when the 
when the Allies accepted the unconditional surrender of Germany and the, the world, it seemed, erupted in celebrations because it was the end of war. I mean, that's different, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, we were enemies of God Almighty. You know what that is? To be an enemy of God Almighty? We were under His just and righteous wrath. We deserve nothing but an eternity of hell for that. And by His scars, we get peace. He loves us. And all of that hangs on a very real resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And so Jesus shows them his scars, shows them his side. Verse 20 ends then. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So <laughs> things have turned around. They were glad. Remember Jesus' words in the upper room again, John 16, 19, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your, joy, your sorrow will turn into joy. It's the same word here. They were glad. They had the joy. And so also, just to, it affords us just a little moment to say, won't we be so glad when we see the Lord? You look forward to that? Oh, how happy you'll be when you see Him face to face. Well, friends, a little while. A little while in your will. So verse 20 ends, then the, sorry, now, I just did that. Now, the passage pivots, and it pivots looking forwards, okay? Now notice this. Where to from here for the disciples? That's the question. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus repeats it, peace be with you, but he doesn't tie it this time, this time to his scars, but it's actually to the mission that they have going forward. This is all real and this has all been received, this is all true. What for them now? Well, there's three aspects to their mission. There's the sending of the mission, there's the power and the peace for the mission, and then the description of their mission, okay? First, the sending on mission. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, even so I am sending you. What a privilege. What a blessing. So the parallel is the same kind of way that the Father sent the Son into the world. The Son is now sending His apostles and by implication, I think, all of us into the world. That's the parallel. Both are commissioned, both us and the Lord Jesus, commissioned by God. Both done, all of, it, all of this, our mission in obedience to God. Just as Jesus was not of this world, but sent into this world by the Father, so we have been called out of the world, but we are also sent into the world like Jesus, like that. And just as the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, we read about it in John chapter 1, when He was baptized and His preparation for ministry, so we actually get the next moment in the story. We get the power, I'm calling the power and the peace for the mission. Verse 22, it says this, And when he had said this, he breathed on them. So this is obviously pre-COVID, okay? Yeah. He breathed on them. This won't work. I mean, it is a funny scene to think about, but anyway. So, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what just happened? It's a bit strange, isn't it? I don't think this is like... Pre-Pentecost, like kind of like pretty much Pentecost, but not quite. You know, Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit came. And do you remember what happened at Pentecost? 
Like they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began preaching with boldness and with courage. They were speaking in tongues so the people from other languages could hear the word of the gospel in their own, in their own voice, their own language, so that they could respond and repent and enter the kingdom of heaven. 3,000 people were saved that day, baptized and added into the church. Like that was a big, big moment, a big, big day. This, you know... It's, it's amazing what doesn't happen, <laughs> you know, receive the Holy Spirit and they kind of, like the next story, they're locked, they're in locked doors again, fearful. So I don't take this as they actually in this moment, they've received the Holy Spirit, but I think it is a parable so that they will remember this moment when they do receive the Holy Spirit, what is actually happening when that happens and what is actually happening? What is Jesus showing them when He breathes on them? And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. I think it's like an enacted parable. He's saying, when you receive the Holy Spirit, this is how it happens. The Holy Spirit proceeds from me. You're getting me. When you experience the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, remember, it was the Holy Spirit proceeded like breath from me. Breath and Spirit, same word. When you know His power, it's my power at work in your life. When you know His presence, it's my presence at work in your life. Remember John 14, 18. Keep going back to the upper room because so much of this is playing out, what happened in the upper room. Jesus said this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How? Through the Holy Spirit. And this naturally goes alongside the mission then, isn't it? Um, That Jesus says, I'm sending you and I'm with you. Remember the Great Commission, how that goes? Hopefully you remember it because it's on the sign as you walk out of the church. And hopefully you've read it at least once, you know. And there's like two phrases there, right? We've got the command and then we've got the promise. Right? Go into the world and make disciples. And you go, whoa, okay, that's a lot to walk out of. I'm just walking to my car, you know. You're like, go into the world and make disciples. It seems like, it seems enormous. It seems impossible. Like, you know, I mean, imagine disciples. For us, it seems huge and unattainable and quite scary. Imagine for the disciples. Okay, go into the whole world and make disciples. What? what? Which way off the mountain is the whole world to make disciples? It's, there are no planes, there's no social media. It's like, how precious is the promise? Lo, I will be with you, even to the end of the age. So Jesus says, I'm sending you, and I'm with you. I am always with you. So then we get to the third thing, the description of their mission. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Clear as, clear as anything, isn't it? That does seem strange, doesn't it? What? Huh? I think we can all agree that this is not kind of promoting a kind of like, you know, like Oprah gives out car, like you get a car and you get a car and it's like, you get forgiveness, you get forgiveness, you do not get forgiveness. And they're kind of like in some kind of authoritative way on behalf of God. But what is happening? Well, I think the best way of understanding this is probably to look forward, what do they do? What do the disciples do? I can see two ways that this gets played out in the early church and the apostles. Firstly, their fundamental message to the whole world was the forgiveness of sin. That offer is given as sent by Jesus, ambassadors of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and in a sense, opening up the doors of heaven and saying, whosoever come will be, will be received. You can, there is forgiveness for all of your sins. It is open to you. They are offering that to everyone. 
Like Paul, I love in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Like we implore you on behalf of Christ. Like, so, you know, God making his appeal through us. So he, in some mysterious way, he is speaking through me to you when God himself is making this appeal. And, and Paul's like, we implore you. It's on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to him. Like, be forgiven. You see this throughout the preaching in the book of Acts. It's like forgiveness, reconciliation. Acts 3.19 to Jews. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 5.31, while on trial, they say, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. Acts 10.43, to Gentiles, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 13.38, Pisidian Antioch, let it be known to you, therefore, Brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Acts 26, verse 18. Jesus commissioned Paul, and what was his commission? To open their eyes that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place with, among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That was repetitive, wasn't it? Forgiveness of sins. It's helpful to know that. That the, the, the kind of the tip of the spear of the mission of the church is to offer to the world forgiveness of sins. Not another institution on planet earth has that authority, is able to do that. Lots of other institutions can do a million other good things, but none other is offering to the world this, be reconciled to God. Again, I worry that this doesn't land on us sometimes, hey, like fresh. You are forgiven of all your sins. I sometimes wonder what, it's, what it would be like to be like a tour guide of the Grand Canyon, you know, or the Northern Lights or something like that. And, and for that just to kind of wear out, you know, maybe. And like the first time you saw the, the Grand Canyon, you were like, whoa, amazed. But the 351st time, it was like, there it is, it's a big hole, you know whatever, because <laughs> you know, you're just like, taking people out, taking people through. You know, I just, well, I don't wonder what it's like. I worry that that can happen in my own heart when it comes to, you can be forgiven of all your sins. Makes the Grand Canyon look like nothing. And to just hear that and become so familiar, so it's just, oh, good. No, remember, we were enemies of God, and He has wiped all your sins away. He took them on himself at great cost. So that's the first level to, I think, the fulfillment of that passage, that those, those verses. The second is, you see examples where the, the early church and the apostles speak with authority on who is forgiven and who is not forgiven. And I think this is a massive grace to the church it's an amazing thing and it's, uh, to, to be a Christian and to have others confirm, yet you're forgiven of all your sins. Praise God, because I can be self-deluded. You are forgiven. And that's kind of what happens when you get baptized, right? When you become a member of this church, that's kind of what happened. The church here spoke that, yes, we believe on behalf of God, you are forgiven. You're a true follower of Jesus. 
You have a credible profession of faith. You get the gospel right, and you are trying to follow Jesus, and we praise God, and we speak those words. That's what happens kind of when you get baptized. You can't baptize yourself. You know, we've said this before. You can't do it. You know, like I became a Christian, you just like pour the bath and just in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you just can't do it. You need someone else to agree. Someone else to go, I agree, you're a Christian. Preferably a church. It's a grace to us that Jesus commissions the disciples to do something like this because it's such comfort to me. I want others to affirm the reality of Christ in my life. That's good for me. And it's part of the mission that God's given the church. It's also a grace to people who don't believe. So I'm, going to, I'm offering the forgiveness of sins this morning on behalf of Christ to this, everyone here. And some of you might be like, I do not want it. We can speak with authority on behalf of heaven. You aren't forgiven. You are still in your sin. Or a person says, you know, I, 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 I love Jesus, but you, you just continue in unrepentant sin. Well, the church has been authorized to speak on behalf of God, warning that person, you are not forgiven of your sin. We are very fearful that you're not. When someone appears to come to Christ, I think it's a very natural thing to want to assure them you are forgiven of your sins, like even like in that moment and just to assure them. I think I've, I've seen this, right? And, and praise God for when it, it goes well. But it, it, it often doesn't, I think. Where I, I know people who have gone down the front at a big kind of thing and come on down and, you know, you hope that the gospel's present. Often the gospel's not been present, that they must turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. It's been some other kind of offer, but down we come and a prayer is prayed and they're told, kind of like this, they are told, and now you are forgiven of all of your sins. But I know, I know people who have walked away from that place unchanged, not loving Jesus, gone back to their old ways. You've pronounced in that moment that you are forgiven of all of your sins? Maybe, maybe. Pray, pray that be true, right? But we're not saved by rehearsing a prayer. We're saved by true, genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is best attested to in a church. God's people seeing you, loving you, baptizing you, becoming a member. And then if you walk away, then the church can go after you and say, we are worried for your soul. We are worried you are not forgiven. That's what Matthew 18 is all about, isn't it? Context, someone is in unrepentant sin. Last point of call, as Jesus says, is Jesus, this is Jesus' words. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's the same kind of language as John's gospel, isn't it? If you forgive them, they'll be forgiven. If they're not forgiven, they won't be forgiven. If you bind, they'll be bound. If, they, if you loose, they'll be loosed. The language of binding and loosing is, in that context, is a, is a judge. You know, and then the person, it's kind of saying, judicial, as, as the judge, that your charges are either, you are either bound by your charges, you are guilty, or you are loosed. The charges are released. You're released. The church speaking on behalf of God. Brothers and sisters, it is a grace to us to have this in our lives. 
It is a grace to you to be in a church where this is happening, like Jesus commissioned the apostles. To have people agreeing with us, you are his, you are forgiven. To warn us if we fall away. I'm, 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 I'm nearly done, like a minute to go. Or a couple, two minutes to go. No. Um, underlying all of this is just the fundamental question then this morning, are you forgiven of your sins? Are you? Would you be forgiven this morning if not? This exists less and less in our world, hey, the idea of forgiveness. We live in a culture that loves to, to nail people to pass, for past sins and give you no way out. We will hold you accountable now and forever and you will pay. And the Christian gospel is so good in a world that's lost the concept of forgiveness. That His mercy is more than all of our sins. So I'm here now, in a, in a sense, I personally, you know, a person saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, His scars have saved my soul and many of ours. Ambassador for Jesus, sent by Him, given the Holy Spirit to offer to the world and to you, if you're not a Christian this morning, you can be forgiven of all of your sins if you put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. His nail-scarred hands are wide open. And all you have to do is come and throw yourself on His mercy. Put your trust in Him. Why would you hold on to your sins? Would you forever? When you can lay hold of Christ? I love this song. It says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. So I will arise and go to Jesus. and He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Saviour, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Let me pray. Father, please, by your Spirit, pour out gifts of repentance and faith and forgiveness this morning, we pray. There is no greater need. We have no greater need. We will never have any greater need than to be reconciled to God. Please keep us, we pray, by your grace, now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.